can't wait to get into today's message. Let's do something. Let's pray together. And we're going to get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we just give you honor and praise and glory. You sent your Son to die for a wretch like me. I don't deserve it. I never will earn it. But Lord, I pray that one day when you come again, you will be able to say to all of us, well done, good and faithful servant. The goal, Lord, is to love everybody well. And sometimes love is not an easy thing. Loving someone, especially us who are unlovable, requires great patience. Lord, you desire none to perish, but all to come to repentance. I pray, Lord, that as we look at Resurrection Sunday, we truly look at the evidence you are who you say you are, that you did what you said you did, and that we can believe because the tomb is empty. You were witnessed by over 500 people after your death, your resurrection. Lord, we're going to look at some of these facts. We don't live in evidential, we don't, we don't live a blind faith. We live in evidential-based faith. This is true, and we have proof. You've given us proof, eyewitness accounts, other things, Lord. We just pray that you are honored and glorified in word and deed, that we would learn to love everyone well, that we would take care of others give this time to you. This is our act of worship to you. And we're going to take communion at the end, Lord, because we do that in remembrance of you until you come a second time. So, Lord, we give this time to you. I pray you give me the words to say. If it's not from you, take it from me. Don't allow me to say it. But if it is from you, allow me to preach it from the rooftops. for all those who are listening online that they would hear your truth and the truth would set them free. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are not able to use this thing. (laughs) I don't know, is it Resurrection Sunday. Here we go. John, chapter 20, verse 1 says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, 
he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went right into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in its own place by itself. Then the other disciple, who he'd reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For yet, they did not understand the Scriptures, that he must have rise from the dead. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. She stooped in to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbinai which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet descended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then he said to the things to her, Not working. (laughs) Will you click it? I'm just going to have you click it for me. Thanks. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Thank you. I have one question for all of us here today. If someone came up to you today and asked you why you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, what would you say? What would be your answer? The title of this sermon is Facts About Jesus, worth repeating. I want you to be well informed about why you believe what you believe. There are too many people in the world today that believe all kinds of things. In fact, there are many who spew conspiracy theories constantly. And people believe it all the time. It's very easy to tell somebody a lie. It's very hard to have proof and evidence and facts and then be able to back proof, evidence, and facts up with truth. So are you able to answer the question why you believe in Christ resurrected from the dead? If not, I'm going to give you a couple facts today that you can use to when you're sitting down at Easter dinner tonight, Resurrection Sunday dinner, sorry Steve. When you're having Easter dinner tonight, and maybe you got people in your family who don't know, who maybe don't believe, who think you're kind of crazy. I'm in that. I'm with you on that one. 
believe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here you have answers that you're able to answer. Here you have some of the facts that you're able to give to people. There's three facts that I'm going to give to you today that are very important about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why you follow, believe, why you follow and believe in Jesus. Here's fact number one. Jesus died at the crucifixion. That's a fact. It's indisputed. In fact, Jesus predicted he would die this way four different times. And we have four eyewitness accounts that talk about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Eyewitness accounts. Now they're put together in what we call the Bible. But they're four different books that people wrote of the time about what happened. And they were eyewitnesses. When you walk into a court of law, how many eyewitnesses do you hope to have on your side when you're testifying? One? Two? We have four that are just here today. Now, he talks about this in Matthew 16, 21, his dying as crucifixion. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. And finally, and most importantly, in chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. Why is that most importantly? Because he says something very specific. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This prophecy about his death is of the utmost importance. Why? Why do you think it's of the utmost importance? Because Jesus said that he would be crucified. This is not typical of the Jews. The Jews don't crucify people. The Jews would stone you to death. So Jesus specifically said something that was going to happen. Who did he really upset? Who did he upset? He upset the Jewish leaders of the time, the religious and political leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He got them so mad at him, he had a powder keg that he set up in the beginning of the week, right after Palm Sunday, where he constantly goes through, and you can start this in Matthew. In fact, you can go look it up in Matthew chapter 23, where he says to the religious and political leaders of the time, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites! He constantly calls them out. He gives them at least eight woes there. He calls them hypocrites constantly, and he gets them really angry. In fact, in the beginning of that, before he gets in there, he starts flipping over changing tables. Sweet Jesus? The really nice Jesus? The little Easter Bunny Jesus? This, this message brought to you by the letter E, Jesus? That guy? Yeah, he's angry. And he has a righteous anger. And he shows it to them, the religious and political leaders of his time. When people say to you, Christianity is not something that's involved in politics, you've never read the Gospels then. Because Jesus was 100% involved in politics. 
So stop telling people, oh, as a Christian, I'm not going to get involved in politics. That's just wrong. No, it's 100% right. You should be involved in politics because Christ should affect your whole life, including your political life. The problem is we have people that say they follow Christ. They claim that they do that, but they tell you what you want to hear. They tickle your ears. And so we have eyewitness accounts here, and Jesus proved that he was going to die of crucifixion, which is what the Romans would do, not what the Jews would do. And yet, you just heard them say, we didn't understand the scriptures. We didn't understand why he was going to raise from the dead. We didn't understand how he was going to die. Yet, he predicted it earlier, saying he was going to die of crucifixion. In fact, Peter gets into an argument with them. This is never going to happen, Lord. We're not going to let this happen. Yet, before Peter understands this, God had said to him, No, I'm going to die of crucifixion. They're going to flog me, they're going to mock me, and I'm going to die of crucifixion. So they missed the fact. They missed the fact that he's going to be raised from the dead. You ever heard of a guy named Thomas? They missed the facts. I know if you've been coming to church for a long time, you could not overlook this. You would never overlook this as Christians. That's the sentiment we hear. I mean, hindsight's always 2020. But they did. They overlooked it. They missed the fact that he said he was going to die of crucifixion. So Jesus predicts his own death and execution, and it happens. Now, I know that's not enough proof, and that's not enough to prove that it happened. Jesus' execution by crucifixion is recorded in the first four Gospels of the book of the Bible. However, there are a number of non-Christian sources. So all you people who claim that we're biased, that those writers of the New Testament were biased because they were followers of Christ, let me give you some proof here. Are you ready for this? Numerous people have talked about Jesus outside of the Bible. Josephus, there's your first one. He was Jewish. He was a first century Jewish historian. And he said this about Jesus. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified. That's Josephus. He even predicted Jesus and said that Jesus was killed by crucifixion. That's not enough? Here's Tacitus. He's a Roman, first century historian. He said this, Nero fasted, and he fasted the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted it on the most exquisite tortures on the class hated for their abomination. They're called Christians by the populace. Christos, from whom the name it originated from, suffering the most extreme penalty. As a Roman citizen, Tacitus would never say the word crucifixion. He said the extreme penalty. They all knew what he meant. So he suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. There you go, Roman. Roman Tacitus. There's another proof. Lucane, the Greek satirist said this, satirist said this, the Christians, you know, those who worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites, he was crucified on their accounts. That's what the Greek guy said. He 
Peter's the last one, the Talmud, the Jewish book of law and history. They report on this. On the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. Yeshua in Hebrew is Joshua, or in Greek it means Jesus. So Jesus' death by crucifixion is a historical fact supported by many in ancient Near Eastern cultures and antiquities. So many scholars believe in the evidence that it was written about that Jesus died of crucifixion. The fact that Jesus died of crucifixion happened is true. It's indisputable. So what did the atheists do? Are you ready? He was never a real human being. There is nothing in history that shows that Jesus was real. He was made up.
from all of what he was saying is that Paul's life completely changed. Saul of Tarsus, who was killing those in church vehemently, he changed his ways when Jesus showed up and said to him, why are you doing this? In fact, listen to it. Listen to what he says. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way, men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you prosecuting me or persecuting me? Verse 5, he said to him, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who you're traveling with stood speechless. They heard voices, but saw no one. Saul rose from the ground, those eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Can you imagine being this guy? The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas you'll find a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And as he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might reign, regain his sight. And Ananias answered this, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to us. To your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I don't want to go. You're asking me to go? Are you kidding me right now? This is Saul, the guy who's murdering me. He's murdering my fellow Christians. And i got to go see him. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's chosen and should mind to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name.
accounts. We don't believe in Christ because it's nice. Because it's all sunshine and rainbows. We believe in Jesus Christ because it's the truth. It's proven fact. Too many don't know why they believe what they believe. They were just born that way. I was born in the United States. I don't care. Do you know how many people in the United States that actually claim to be followers of Jesus? In the 1980s, it was upwards of 90%. Do you know what it is now? It's less than 50%. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter who you're born to. You either believe because of the facts or you don't believe. So let's keep going. Paul's conversion was based on personal appearance of the risen Christ. He believed that he witnessed the risen Christ, and so he was strengthened, like the original disciples, and was willing to suffer for that crazy message that God's son rose from the dead. This Saul of Tarsus, the, the Hebrew of Hebrews, was willing to walk away from the Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith, and follow Christ. What are you willing to walk away from and follow Christ? His family hated him for it. What's your family hate you for? Why would someone who was persecuted and who persecuted the church so suddenly become a believer? Why would Paul, God's chosen people, why would he change so suddenly to believe a, to be a believer in Jesus? What benefit would it have for him? In fact, Paul, as a Jew, would say this was blasphemy. It's blasphemy to say that someone is the Son of God or that someone is God. And he killed Christians for it. Unless something changed. Something had to change. Paul believed because he witnessed the event of Christ, not just some story but an event that changed his life. So let me ask you a question. What events changed your life for Christ? For me, I gave up drinking. For me, I gave up drugs. For me, I gave up a lot. I, I was skinny way back in the day. I was a pretty muscular guy, so I had girlfriends. I had a lot of girlfriends. I gave up sex outside of marriage. I gave up a lot that I thought was good stuff. I thought it was fun. I gave up all my friends. I gave up my life that I thought was a lot of fun. And I said, Lord, if you really are who you say you are, I want my life to change. You know what I have in my house right now? I don't have any alcohol at all. None. I don't run to the bottle anymore. I don't drink. I, mean, I was getting drunk, guys, when I was 17. I was getting drunk like you wouldn't even believe. I got so drunk one time. I was 17. I was drunk, and I was sitting in a car in the back seat, and I couldn't even lift my head up. They had to hit the brakes, so my head moved forward. I was that drunk. I got so drunk one time when I was at Ferris State University that my buddy, my brother, said to me in the fraternity, if you can out-drink me, I'll buy you beer for the rest of the year. I was like, all right, no problem, let's go. So we bought an 18-pack of Nat Ice. It's 
disgusting beer. I drank the whole thing in four hours. Then I had a pint of Jack Daniels. Drank that all. Then I had 11 kamikaze shots after that. I got so drunk I passed out on the toilet. My buddies picked me up and threw me on a bed. I didn't wake up till the next, next day at about 7 o'clock at night. And I was like, what day is it? I got drunk on a Thursday night. It was Saturday. I got up and I went back to the dorm, took a shower, went right back to drinking again. What did you give up to be a follower of Christ? What did you give up? Paul gave up the ability to murder people. Fact number two, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, the persecutor of the church, suddenly changed because Jesus appeared to him and tells him the truth. But is that enough? I mean, are there others who have done the same? Do you know of anybody who has completely changed their ways because they became a follower of Christ? Here's another example. Let me give you another example. James, the brother of Jesus. In fact, he suddenly changes from what we understand. Now, there's not as much information on James as there is on Paul, but here's something interesting. The gospel report that Jesus' brother, including James, were unbelievers during Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, says this, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. See, they heard that Jesus was saying he was the Son of God. And the brothers were like, dude, we've got to go get him. He's nuts. And so they go out there and they try to seize him. They're saying he's out of his mind. we got to stop this guy. This is our brother. We grew up with him. He's claiming to be the father. He's claiming to be God's son. we got to stop him. Number two, James is identified as the leader in the Jerusalem church. Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 through 19. Then after three years, Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Caiaphas and remained with him for 15 days. But then I saw none other than the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What? So even Jesus' own family members suddenly change because of the resurrection. Not only did James convert to Christianity, his belief in Jesus and his resurrection was so strong that he was willing to die as a martyr for Christ. He was willing to die for his own brother's death. James's death is recorded by Josephus. In fact, it's recorded by others, Clement of Alexandria. So James's death is attested by both Christian and non-Christian sources. So with James, like Paul, many are in the history books, or his story. That's where we get the word history, his story books. We have two people who converted from non-belief to belief because they witnessed the events of Jesus' resurrection. And what happened to to cause such a conversion? Let's look at the facts. Fact number three. Here it is. There are three facts that we need to look at. I'm going to have you switch it. Thank you. The three facts we're going to look at today when it comes to the empty tomb. These are important facts. These are important facts, because you have to understand the tomb is empty. Fact number one is Jerusalem fact. Jesus was executed in Jerusalem. There's no question of that. Not one bit. And it would have been impossible 
for the disciples to claim the empty tomb in Jerusalem because of so many enemies as Christianity did. There were Jews and Romans who didn't think Christianity was true, who didn't think Jesus was true, and for when they have this idea that he's an empty tomb, they could have gone to the tomb and said, nope, there's no empty tomb, look, here's the bones. So they had to come up with something. Do you know what they came up with? The swoon theory. The Jews came up with the swoon theory. Oh, yeah, he was beaten and flogged almost death. In fact, the Romans had to stop. And then they hung him on a tree, bleeding out and choking to death, suffocating. But somehow, oh, he just passed out. just passed out. In fact, the killing machines of the time, the Roman soldiers, they go to break the legs of all the people hanging. In fact, the soldiers get to the point where they're like, we're just going to break these guys' legs so they suffocate to death so we can move on. And they get to Jesus' body. You know what they do? Oh, he's already dead. So you're telling me the guys that know how to kill people, the, the, the people who were killing machines, didn't know that Jesus was dead? In fact, not only do they do that, they take a spear and they shove it into his side. And comes out water and blood. That's the sack that's holding outside of the heart. That's where the water and blood comes from. They shove it in his side. They know he's dead. And so they bring him down. Yet, you talk to Jews today, Orthodox Jews, and they'll tell you Christians just stole his body. He really just passed out. That's why there's an empty tomb. You're really going to hang your hat on that? Because according to Acts, the disciples started claiming Jesus' resurrection about 15 days after the event, and the Jews and the Romans could have produced the corpse to undermine their whole claims. But they couldn't. They couldn't do it. Best they could come up with was the swoon theory that he just passed out and the disciples stole the body. That's the best they could come up with. The best that they could come up with has so many holes in their theories, so many problems in their understanding of truth and the human body. They're going to rest their hats on it. They're going to rest on those laurels. All I have to say is I pity you. I pity because you can see the truth and you just don't want to see the truth. So him passing on the cross would have been impossible because the Romans knew the flogging. They knew that hanging him by his hands and his feet would have killed him in less than a day. Plus, in John chapter 19, verse 31, the Romans take the bodies down from the cross, and I said this already, they break the legs just to make sure. They didn't do that to Christ. Why didn't they do that to Christ? Because they already knew he was dead. Number two, his body was stolen. This is my favorite one. Because there's no proof to it at all, except, are you ready for this? After Christ dies, what do all the disciple men do? Anyone know what they do? They ran away. The disciples of Christ for three years, hanging out with this guy, watching. 
watch him get killed, watch him get hung, and then they fear and take off. They ran away. How could they steal the body if they took off running? They were running in fear. They were scared. So there's no way they could have stolen the body. In fact, this theory is too hard to explain for the enemies of Christ because they can't prove it. Because the tomb is empty. So to make this claim that the body was stolen would have forgotten a couple factors. Number one, the guards who guarded the tomb would have had to have been paid off. The Roman killing machines that guarded the tomb, you would have had to pay them off. Good luck. You got no money because Christ said, don't take anything with you. So how are you going to pay the guards off? Number two, there would need to be a really good motive for stealing your body. What is the motive for stealing the body? What's the motive? None of the disciples of Jesus claiming that he was raised from the dead got money for it. None of the disciples got fame for stealing the body. Because all of them were persecuted. They were all killed for claiming to follow Christ. So what would have been their motive for stealing the body? Money? No. Drugs? No. Wine? Not a chance. Women? Well, they would have got a lot of women, right? No. You got nothing. There was no motivation behind stealing the body. What would they have gotten? Nothing. In fact, none of them fit the situation or the history, and none of that comes true of what we know of the history of the disciples. Not one bit. Here's the last thing. The disciples would need to coordinate how the body was going to be stolen. But how would they do that? How are you going to do that? You can't just walk up to a Roman tomb and steal a body. It doesn't work that way. You can't do it. I hate to tell you guys this. This isn't grave robbing. They had guards there. Actual guards with weapons. You would have had to have killed all those guys and then opened the tomb with a giant stone with many of your disciples, rolled it back, and then stolen the body. In one night? Good luck. They would have had to bribe the guards. They would have needed a bunch of people to move the stone, like a Roman battalion. Roman battalion was about 600 to 1,200 people. That's how many you would have had to buy off, by the way. They would have had to have been too many people who would have seen what was going on because people were watching. The Jews were watching. They were constantly watching the followers of Christ, his disciples, because they were waiting for an uprising. The city was on high alert. Yet nothing happened. I think this last thing is worth repeating. I think this is the last part that's worth repeating because as a disciple, men ran away. Here's the testimony of the women. I want you guys to say something that's, I want to say something to you that's very important about testimony of women in ancient Near Eastern history, ancient Near Eastern culture. Are you ready? Here's the problem with women testimony. If you want any credibility at all, you never talk to a woman. In fact, you lose all credibility. Everything you say, if you're a woman, you lose all credibility. In fact, they don't even, they don't even care what women say. It was a men-driven culture, still is. 2018, women still can't drive, or they can first, for the first time ever, in Saudi Arabia, they can drive without a man. 2018. To all the feminists who are upset, go 
fight in Saudi Arabia for women's rights. But here's the thing. I know this sounds harsh, right? I know that sounds unfair and unloving and sexist and bigoted, right? But what do I mean by that? Here's what the Talmud, the Jewish law, says about women. Are you ready? Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to a woman. another one. The world cannot exist without males and females happy. And so it is he who has children are males. And woe to him who has children that are females. Ouch. How about this doozy? Are you ready? Any evidence which women give is not valid at all to offer in the court of law. In fact, to hear what a woman has to say. Wow. That's the attitude of ancient Near Eastern culture. So when you see that the women in the New Testament are the first ones to show up in the empty tomb, that's the most embarrassing thing as any man could ever give an account to, especially in the eyes of the Jews. Ask you a question, people. Who was the first person to the tomb? Mary Magdalene. If you're an accurate writer and you're a man in this culture, who in their right mind, if they're making all this up, would put a woman's name down? Because you lose all credibility. Or it's 100% credible because you're telling the truth. And the truth will set you free. So if the account of the empty tomb has been invented, it would most likely have not listed the women as the primary witnesses because the women's testimony meant nothing. And it would have been nearly as credible as a man's. Hence, the empty tomb appears to be a historical and credible fact in light of this principal embarrassment. Jesus was witnessed by or appeared to Mary Magdalene in Jerusalem first. So the women absolutely of utmost importance. In fact, God says women are absolutely equal to men. And they have every right that a man has. And they should be respected and loved completely. In fact, last week I talked about wives, husbands, you need to die for your wife and your kids. Many of them aren't even willing to do that. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Jesus appeared to John and Peter in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared to ten disciples in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared to seven disciples in Galilee. Jesus appeared to 500 at one time, according to Paul. James, his brother, doubting Thomas, 40 days later, the death in Jerusalem. And again, we ate breakfast with the disciples. He eats breakfast with the disciples. He changes lives of those who doubt him. Even those who are his own family, he changed the lives of one of his worst enemies, Paul. And lastly, he was crucified, and that's well documented outside the Bible. These are the facts of Jesus' resurrection, and this is why we follow him. Because there is enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the risen Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. He was sent into this world to save it from the penalty of the wrath of God because we broke God's laws. That's just a fact. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has made some error in our lives. And Jesus Christ came willingly to die for that error. And I'll tell you right now, I've made not just one error, I've made error after error after error after error, and Jesus died for all of it. He died for all the past errors I made, He dies for all the future errors I made, He even died for the present errors, hence why it's a gift we're here today. Present is a gift, because we don't deserve it. That's what true mercy is. That's what true love is. None of us deserve any of it. None of us have earned any of it. And this idea that you can earn Christ's redemption is just ridiculous. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Anyone who says to you that you can lose salvation doesn't know Scripture. Because salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. Salvation is something that Jesus did, not you or I. It's something we accept, we believe. In fact, that's why we baptize. We baptize here because we say, as a believer in Christ, I'm going to let the old wash away through immersion and I'm going to come out clean because the old is gone, the new is here. I follow Christ because I believe in the truth and the truth has set me free. Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. It never has been. It's about dead people becoming alive. That's what Christianity is about. Spiritually dead people realizing that we've been justified by faith and through faith. Because it's by grace that we've been saved. Nothing you or I have done. None of us can boast. None of us have done enough work to earn salvation. It's by grace through faith. That's the truth. That's why we believe. Because He changed a wretch like me. Not because I'm better than anybody else. Not because I've earned it. Not because I go to church. But because He said, I love you. be to God. Who's going to save this wretched man? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Because I do the things I do not want to do and I do them anyway. Why? Because I have the sin nature that lives inside me. So we celebrate Easter together. We celebrate Resurrection Sunday together because it's fact. It's irrefutable fact. It's not because we're better than anybody else. And when you hear people say to you, I won't go on the door of a church because if I walk in, I'll burn up. No, you won't. First thing I say to somebody when they tell me that, Pastor, I can't come to church. No, you won't. Because I'm right there with you. Right there with you. I'm no perfect person. But Jesus said, I love you. And I'm going to die for you. And I said, thank you. And I accept that. 
changes, and it has. It's completely different. It changes every day. Every day I get into the Word and I pray and I read, my life completely becomes different. When I start following God, when I actually repent, see, there's repentance and there's remorse. Remorse is just being caught in sin. That's all remorse is. Oh, man, you caught me. You're right. I shouldn't have been looking at at that on my phone. I shouldn't have been calling that person. I shouldn't have done, yeah, you caught me. I'm sorry. I feel bad. Two days later, oh, you caught me again? Oh, I'm so sorry. That's remorse. Repentance is going, I'm done with that. I'm going this way. And you turn and go opposite of what you were doing. That's what happened to me. I'm not perfect. You know, often I wish I could smoke a cigarette again. I love smoking cigarettes. It made me feel good. Until I witnessed my 72-year-old grandmother die on my bed from emphysema. She was wheezing the whole time. It's because she smoked. It's what they did. I remember hearing it all. Oh, it's how they grew up. In 1920s and 30s, that's what they did. You just smoked. It was the cool thing to do. She died at 72 years old in my bed. And I had to witness her last breath. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. I can't, I, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have that pain, that heartache, that sadness. My mother still misses her mother. To this day, it's too short. changed the way that I eat because of other things, family history. My grandfather on the Italian side, we love, we love to eat. I don't know if you all know this. I'm Italian and Dutch. I love to eat. You go to Grandma's house, Grandma, I- I'm hungry. Okay, Christopher! And here comes the seven-course meal. And you're like, whoa, I just wanted a bagel or something. Boom! Masticcioli. Uh, we had spaghetti. We had gnocchis. We had ham. We had beef. We had all kinds of food. And I'm just going... I was hungry, and I used to eat a ton. Still, to this day, it was, oh, you're done eating? Give it to Chris, he'll eat it. Yeah, I'll eat that. I mean, I was that fat kid that walk up to you in school and go, hey, you done eating that? No, I just started. Well, are you going to be done eating that? No, no, I just started eating. Okay, and I'd sit there and look at you. You done now? How about now? And I'm like, I was that kid. So I got to the point where I was 289 pounds. And I'm going to give you guys a picture of when I was in Jerusalem. I was so fat that my wife, this was her reaction when she saw it. She went, I'm like, yeah, that was me, babe. Now I have type 2 diabetes. Never going to get rid of it. Yes, I've lost 40 plus pounds. I've had another 40 to go, 50 to go. But I was ashamed of my life and the way I was living, and I, so I ran to food. I ran to food because that's acceptable. That's an acceptable. Don't run to drugs and alcohol. Run to food. So I ran to food. But Christ has changed my life, and I constantly am getting better and better and better and learning to follow Him and not my ways but His ways. That's the message I have for us. Let me pray for us. As we're going to sing worship to God and we're going to have communion, if you don't know who God is,
this. I pray that you would come to know God, that he would infect your heart, that he would say to you, you are very important. I died for you. I love you so much. I'm willing to die for you. That's the message I have for us. So please, as I pray right now and I get ready to do the communion, the fact that we're going to celebrate Jesus Christ's death and remember him until he comes a second time. That's what communion is. If you don't know Christ, please come to know Christ. Because I don't want you to take this unworthy. Don't take this if you don't know Christ. If you've not made your shortened accounts with Christ in your sin life, make those accounts short right now. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as we're about to take communion, Lord, and we just ask you to forgive us of our sins. We make mistakes every day. We haven't earned anything except you have given your love to us freely. You choose us. And we choose so many other things. Lord, I know I used to run the sports to run to alcohol, I used to run to drugs, I even used to run to women. None of it filled the void. The only way it was filled in my heart was through you and your gracious love towards me. I thank you for dying on a cross for me. I thank you for coming into my life and affording me the opportunity to preach the truth to literally thousands and thousands of people. Thank you, Lord, that we have been online now for this last year that we have preached these messages this last year, even in the midst of pain and suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Job 13, 15. Lord, we are slayed every day. Everybody who gets any kind of disease dies. Everybody who wears a seatbelt dies. Everybody who wears a helmet dies. There isn't one person here that isn't going to die. Lord, I pray that we come to know you because to live is Christ, to die is gain. I pray we have that attitude, that we don't run and live in fear, but we live in joy in your life, in the life that you set for us. Help us to love each other well. Help us to consider others more important than ourselves. Thank you for the facts that you are who you say. Son's home.